Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. So we're deep into the second series of Deep Trouble. Mark Halloran's with me in the studios here of Main FM, and it's time for another episode of Deep Trouble. Mark Halloran, how are you going, Mark? Good, Steve. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Today... We have an interview which combines a number of very disparate subjects. We've got climate change, we've got religion, and we've got science. And they all meet in the Reverend Dr. Chris Mulherron. Chris wrote an article for The Conversation, which was about the philosophy of science and how that related to climate change. And so I was interested in that because I'd studied some of the philosophy of science myself. It was also interesting to me that Chris is a Christian. As well as being a a scientist. He has a background in engineering, philosophy and theology and has a doctorate in philosophical hermeneutics. Yes. Hermeneutics being the theory and methodology of interpretation, especially the interpretation of biblical texts. Chris uses an example of a physics teacher who puts a beaker of water on to boil and asks her student, why is the water boiling? After they give the answer that one might expect given the context of a physics class... She replies, no, the water is boiling because I want a cup of tea. A less devious teacher would have asked, why did I boil the water in the beaker? His analogy was really around that science is going to answer how and that religion and philosophical systems, whatever the theological or philosophical system is there for, is for the why. When we talk about Christian thought, we tend to think of it as a homogenous entity. Hmm. And we don't tend to think about the heterogeneity that occurs amongst Christianity. So, I mean, obviously a Catholic and a Protestant are going to have somewhat different ideas, a worldview in relation to the Christianity. That's going to be significantly different to a Seventh-day Adventist or a Reformist or a Calvinist. And so, like any kind of religious belief... There are various denominations and various interpretations and various ways of looking at the world and interpreting text and evidence, I suppose. I think that faith is an emotion-based relationship, essentially. Mm. It's not about necessarily evidence, although people might say that they're accruing evidence through text and that 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 reinforces their faith. But it seems that faith is about a relationship, and people often talk about their relationship, a personal relationship with a personal God don't they? And so for the Christian scientists, they're talking about a non-interventionist God. They're not coming from a point when they're in the lab of saying that God intervenes in nature. And so that there's a separate realm that's not part of the material realm that science focuses on. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this discussion with Chris Mulherron. So let's have a listen to it now. Hello. Hello, Chris. 
I was interested in the article that you wrote for The Conversation sure. uh, about uh, science, the philosophy of science and climate change. So that was part of the reason I decided to contact you. I'd like to start by talking to you and asking you about your conception of God and faith. Okay, my conception of God and faith. I'm an Orthodox Christian, which means that my conception of God is, as Orthodox Christians would understand it, Trinitarian God. You might call it a supernaturalist view in the sense that I believe that God is the creator of everything. God is personal, that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, came to earth 2,000 years ago approximately, lived, died, resurrected, that the whole of human history makes sense within an Orthodox Christian framework. When it comes to science and uh, more generally human pursuits of knowledge, I'm utterly committed to humans using all their mind to understand the natural world. But from a Christian perspective, the natural world is actually the creation, if you like. All that we encounter through our science is something of God's amazing creation. From my perspective, from a, uh, a perspective of being committed to mainstream Orthodox Christianity and also committed to mainstream science, I think that there is no reason to think that science has got it wrong. So I'm completely happy with a 14 billion year old universe. And part of the story is that human beings have come about through a process of evolution. But another part of the story is that we are created in the image of God. Yeah, so I've rambled on for a little bit. Well, that gives you a bit of a picture. Yeah, I suppose you've made criticisms of uh, the ideas of some of the new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins and Daniel yep. Dennant and the late Christopher Hitchens. I suppose what they would say is that some of those ideas, creationism and evolution, are incommensurate with each other. Well, uh, one of the big criticisms of the new atheists not only from Christian people, but also from atheist, more nuanced thinkers, and particularly people who think more philosophically, one of the criticisms is that the new atheists are notoriously shallow in their understanding of both theology and philosophy. Aristotle wrote two and a half thousand years ago, roughly, talked about different sorts of causes, and just because you explain something in terms of evolution doesn't mean that there is not another compatible explanation. And of course, the most, the, probably the most famous example, current example of that is one that I use all the time, which is the physics teacher who puts a beaker of water on to boil and asks the physics students why the water's boiling. And they give a, an impeccable answer in terms of physics. And he says, or she says, well, no, actually, pulling out a tea bag, the water's boiling because I want a cup of tea. Now, both of those answers are completely acceptable and compatible. One answer is talking about purposes uh, and meanings. The other answer is talking about particles and mechanisms. And there is no conflict between those answers. The new atheists would say, at the, at the level of epistemology, the new atheists would say they, they tend to be uh, reductionists, scientific yes. reductionists and naturalists. They would say that all knowledge comes to us through the, the methods and the practices that we're familiar with in the natural sciences. Naturalism as a worldview says that all there is is the natural 
And so that rules out a whole lot of things that science can't find, uh, can't explain, and says that they're simply meaningless. Where methodological naturalism is the view that when I go into the laboratory and I do an experiment, I'm only looking for natural explanations. But that doesn't mean there aren't other things going on. It simply means that in the laboratory, the scientist uh, practices as a methodological naturalist. You leave your... Uh, if you like, this is a simplistic way of putting it, but you leave your metaphysical convictions at the door when you walk into the laboratory. Therefore, the atheist and the Christian and the other whoever else is in the room, they can all agree on doing science. Right. Uh, where the atheist naturalist thinks that science is all that there is, uh, and the Christian says, well, no, there's much more to the picture, but we can agree on science because we are methodological naturalists when we do science. I think the point you make is that that there's no assumption of an interventionist God. So why, right. why do you decide not to make that assumption? Well, in order to do science, you're, you're investigating a world that is ordered and uh, rational yes. uh, within... And, and within that framework of an ordered natural world, you don't have to uh, examine questions of uh, whether that world finds a place within a bigger worldview that is a, uh, a metaphysical, supernatural worldview. Uh, so you don't need to make assumptions about whether God exists or not yes. to do basic science. So does that to mean... To put science into perspective, you do. Right. But that's another question. Yeah. Um... I suppose, does that mean that the construct of God in terms of understanding the natural world at a methodological level is superfluous in that, that sense? Well, it, it, is at one, it is at one level. That is to say, let's, why don't we use climate change as an example? So yes. at the level of working out what's going on in the atmosphere, yes. you, you, you can be a Christian or an atheist or anything else you like, um, but you all get together and you do your examination of molecules and, and what the sun does and what the planets, what the uh, ocean does and all that sort of thing, and you agree at that level. Yes. But take one step back, and for the Christian, uh, they look at the planet as a creation of God, and they have very particular reasons for thinking we shouldn't abuse the planet, for yes. thinking that we have a responsibility for... Um, generally the Christian word is stewardship, stewardship of the planet, yes. and they will give Christian reasons for doing what they do. Uh, but in the laboratory, uh, everybody just gets on with the practice of methodological naturalism, and, and therefore the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, yeah. uh, which is the scientific panel looking at climate change, what people's metaphysical beliefs are doesn't matter as long as they're committed to mainstream science. And one of the very significant figures in the IPCC, in fact, the person who accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, was John Horton, a committed Christian believer and head of the British Met Office. But when he's doing his climate change, the fact that he's a Christian believer doesn't make any difference to the actual science of climate change. Right even if it might give him motivations and a different perspective on why he's interested in climate change and caring for the planet. Well, I wanted to talk to you about essentially what the new atheists get wrong, because I think you and I um, agree on some of these things. Yep. Um, and so I think in terms of science education, uh, which is what Richard Dawkins does, I feel as though he uh, misrepresents science to some extent. 
meaning that he gives the impression that science produces facts that are essentially set in stone and that they're not yeah proven so i mean it's interesting in terms of the philosophy because i worked as a scientist and i worked with other scientists and it was interesting the number of people who didn't understand the philosophy of science they didn't understand the idea of a hypothesis which is simply supported or not supported not proven not demonstrated beyond any kind of doubt whatsoever. Certainly evidence will accumulate over time and theories yep. will be and constructs will be reified and become laws. But the interesting idea I got was that the strength of science was that any logical observation could completely change an established theory. It could hypothetically, yes. Now, often very firmly established theories are not going to be overturned by one experiment because we all know what it was like to do experiments at, uh, in high school and uh, our experiments, we didn't think when we got the wrong answer, we didn't think that we had disproven the law of gravity. We normally fudged our results and said, there's a, an experimental error there somewhere, a human error there somewhere. Yes. But yes, hypothetically, a negative result can overturn a theory and theories can be confirmed until they are beyond reasonable doubt. But that still doesn't mean that they are in some sort of philosophical sense absolutely certain. Although the pure mathematicians would disagree. They'd say in pure mathematics you can have certainty, you can have proof, but the rest of science is more like the more like as we understand climate changes. Most of us probably intuitively know that if we ask a climate scientist if climate change is occurring and they say, yes, absolutely, we need to do something about it, if we then say well, can you prove it? We intuitively know that they will probably say, well, no, that's not quite how science works. I can't just prove it to you. Well, I was going to ask you that because, I mean, you make a very good distinction in the article from climate change is caused by humans to climate change is most likely caused. This would upset a lot of people ideologically, though. Well, it upsets... um it upsets those who are alarmists and who don't want to look at the nuances of it and who don't want to admit that we can't prove things absolutely. Now, I would call them scientific fundamentalists. And it also upsets the fundamentalists on the other side who tend to put their head in the ground, and some of them are definitely Christian fundamentalists, who, for one reason or other, are deniers. And so what they say is, well, if there's any doubt then it's not proven, therefore I won't believe it. Well, that's not the way human beings think mostly. Mostly we accept evidence where something is beyond reasonable doubt and that really depends on the circumstances of how important it is to believe certain things. So I guess you hear me criticising fundamentalists on both sides and saying life is a little bit more complicated than that, but it doesn't mean we have to be postmodern relativists and say there is no truth. Well, I mean, the, the postmodernists did get one thing partially right, is that there is no absolute Absolutely, truth. Yes. There that, you go. That did it, you hear me say it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I guess what that means is that science will aim for truth, but it's probably impossible to attain absolute truth. And we could never know for sure if we got there. The way that some Christian philosophers have got around this, I'm thinking of Bishop Berkeley, is, and it's sort of like a neo-Platonic idea, is that we can't ever really know reality. 
we can't ever really know the world. We're just in relation to it, and it's our perception through... Empiricism is gathering data about the world through our sense perception, and we can't really know if that's right. We're in an interaction with objects in the world. But that sets you up for solipsism, doesn't it? Uh, It does. I think it sets you up for a pretty concerning sort of a life, a pretty traumatic sort of a life. From a Christian perspective, that's not simply true. From a Christian perspective, we share something of God's rationality that gives us the ability to grasp hold of reality. Now, we we grasp hold of reality dimly as through a mirror, Mm. uh, as the Apostle Paul would say, but we still do have an ability to grasp hold of reality. But if it's proof and certainty we're after, then we start to realise that it's not to be had so easily. It's not to be had at all, actually. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran conversation with the Reverend Dr. Chris Mulherron. I guess the thing, the main divide that you could attribute to religion and science, and I don't know whether we'd agree on this, is that scientific theories need to be subject to falsification like what Popper talked about. But religion, it seems, has a construct at the top of it that's already reified and, and beyond question. Yeah, I think I'd have a couple of comments about that, one about the philosophy of science and one about the nature of faith. On the philosophy of science side, Popper's view that science was about setting up theories that could be falsified and it wasn't a decent scientific theory unless it could be falsified, that applies in some circumstances, roughly, There's lots that it's not easy to just set up an experiment and do the experiment because the experiment might falsify something. More likely than not, as I said before, when we find something that we're uh, pretty committed to, when we find it falsified, we're more likely in Kuhnian terms, to Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science, we're more likely to just sort of ignore it as an anomaly rather than thinking we've falsified the theory then when the anomalies pile up it's it's not a case of one falsification so much as the theory just gets more and more uncomfortable and somebody else comes up with something different for example i'm committed to the basic evolutionary synthesis but we need to recognize that there is really no alternative theory and if somebody came up with an alternative theory then evolution might be questioned by more people Uh, now don't hear me saying i'm not committed to evolution i think it's the only theory that makes sense and i said i had a theological comment on religion and faith being yes. uh reified i my own experience as a christian believer isn't isn't that i just sort of have this package of things which i just never question my faith is in one sense open but open not in the sense that i don't commit i am committed to a certain roughly orthodox I would say completely orthodox Christian faith, but it doesn't mean that I don't question it, and it doesn't right. mean that I don't listen to people who say, no, Jesus never was resurrected or whatever. So it's not that sort of dogmatic fundamentalist stance. It's right. rather more like the stance that I have when I think about Newtonian gravity or, or evolution, or, yes. you know, I'm basically committed to it. Does that mean that evidence can accumulate, uh, you know, historical evidence can yes, accumulate? Yes, that, that I think can... evidence does accumulate. I think that's one of the ways that evidence works. Whatever we mean by evidence, because evidence in physics is different to evidence in history or economics or Christian faith. Evidence yes. is different in whatever field. But 
evidence does accumulate, we get confirmed or disconfirmed in our beliefs. And for some people, for many people, for example, suffering and evil is something that really rattles their faith. So that can be a sort of disconfirming evidence for some people. I was thinking that prior to Darwinism, the the conversation with a Christian philosopher might have been very different. And I suppose some of the fundamentalist Christians that I've known and talked to have felt that with every move forward with science evolution, they're seeding ground. So creation is seeded to evolution. And some people decide not to give that up and stand their ground and fight a battle for, you know, the idea of creation. Is that the feeling, though, of just constantly seeding ground to this this sort of inevitable? Well, it depends what ground you're trying to hold on to. The problem is that many Christians have in the past gone for a sort of what's often called a God of the gaps sort of argument. The argument being, if there is a gap in current knowledge, we introduce God to explain it, and then we use that as evidence for the existence of God. And then as the gap closes, of course, the evidence for God is disappearing and then the other side will use that as evidence for no God. Now that's an old and a faulty sort of move and it's over one and a half thousand years ago that probably the greatest theologian who ever lived, Augustine, wrote to Christians and said, do not be so foolish as to make comments drawing from the Bible now I'm translating into modern terms, do not draw from the Bible and make scientific comments because there are scientists around who know a lot more than you and you will look foolish and you will make the Christian faith look foolish. Now, that's a warning 1,600 years ago. Yes. Uh, that's not a modern thing. Yes. But, but people, haven't, people haven't necessarily taken a lot of notice of that in their enthusiasm to offer evidence for the existence of God. Well, I suppose... Um I guess there's there's always a divide, you know, if, if you're talking about people like Augustine, who's a, a, a scholastic, a, a Christian philosopher, and then you've also got, you know, in terms of the Islamic golden age, you've got uh, Avicenna, who's a Muslim philosopher. There's a divide between what's understood by philosophers and, and the general public. Um, and so Augustine, from memory, was influenced by, you know, neo-Platonic uh, ideas and Aristotle, um, and so here's a very different understanding, and it seems like the merger of science and theology during that period, the scholastic period. Um, well, Augustine was writing a long, a long time before the scholastic period, of course, but um, yes, the scholastic period in the, you know, the sort of years 900 to 1200, roughly, um, that was definitely a merger of Aristotelian philosophy. Yes. Uh, you know, Aristotle was the philosopher and the scholastics wanted to merge Aristotle's views with theological views, but we didn't have science yet. We had hard thinking about the natural world, but we didn't have what we would call science. It, it took a few more centuries before science arrived on the scene, science as we understand it today. And I think that, uh, you know, science didn't really arrive on the scene until we got a number of things coming together. For example, 
a commitment to experiment, yes. um, a commitment to mathematical description, and a worldview, although this was much earlier, a worldview that said it was an ordered world and a contingent world, a world that could be different. Yes. And if it's an ordered and contingent world, then the only way we're going to find out about it is not by sitting in our armchairs and thinking hard about it. It's by getting out of the armchair and going and looking at it. And so when a various things come together, interestingly enough, in a Christian cradle in the West in Christendom, then you get what comes to be called science, which was called natural philosophy, but comes to be called science. But the criticism from later day, maybe Enlightenment philosophers, is that the theology compromised the philosophy. You know, I teach philosophy, and when people ask me what philosophy is, I like to say, philosophy is just thinking clearly. It's yes. just asking questions and saying, well, don't just use a word unless you are as precise as you can about using the word. Therefore, this sort of pedantic pursuit, which certainly is not for everyone, is common to both theology and philosophy, separated as they are now, of trying to tease out what we mean by words. So, you know, I mean, let me give you an example of, uh, I'm afraid it's one of my favourite examples, but it's not terribly charitable. But the fact is, at one stage here in Melbourne, I got to interview Lawrence Krauss, one of the famous new atheists. And I said to him, what do you make of the criticism of some people that you're not really going to the depths or you don't understand the depths of philosophy and theology? His response was, well, there are no depths to philosophy and theology. You don't need to know any philosophy to do science. Now, what Krauss doesn't understand is that that is a philosophical statement, a deeply philosophical statement. It's a statement that would fall into the area of knowledge called philosophy of science. But Lawrence Krauss doesn't even realize that because he doesn't have any respect for this sort of careful teasing out of ideas that happens in philosophy, philosophy of science. Or theology, he just gets on with his cosmology and so, so good you, on him. But so, he talks as a philosopher yes. while disdaining philosophy. It's informed by certain assumptions that philosophy of science examines. For example, science as we know it assumes certain things about the world. It assumes it is an ordered world, not a chaotic world. It assumes that human beings can get in touch with reality. It assumes that the inductive method is a good way of reasoning. Now, these yes. are all assumptions that cannot come out of science. They're assumed by science before science starts its work. But if you're a scientific person, if you think that all truth arises from science, then you've just shot yourself in the foot because even the statement, all truth arises from science, is not a scientific statement. So there has to be a bigger picture in which science finds its place, a bigger philosophical picture, or for the religious person, a theological worldview in which science finds its place. Like I suppose, and having spoken to Islamic philosopher before this in relation to the Arabic transmission, part of the reason that we have science in its current form is because of theology, because of Muslim theology in terms of Aristotle, but also in terms of Christian theology, in terms of the preservation of books. It doesn't mean that there haven't been things that have been compromised. Certainly they have. But they are important in the tradition, it seems. Oh, absolutely. And we have the Muslim world to thank for preserving Aristotle for hundreds of years until it got translated from Arabic into Latin and then into other languages and then the scholastic movement arises. So, yeah, 
there's a long and complicated history there. I guess I'd also say that the new atheists aren't really and can't possibly be atheists, that even Richard Dawkins would admit that they're really agnostics. Well, when he's pushed on his some um, zero to seven scale, he won't admit to being a seven on the atheist end. He, he goes to 6.5 or something like that. Yes. Because he admits that hypothetically you can't actually know there is no God, although in practice he's quite clearly committed to the view that there is no God. And I think that Christians ought to do the same. I think that Christians ought to recognise that if somebody asked me to prove the existence of God, I can't do that. But I am committed to the view that I believe in God beyond reasonable doubt. I would say that God is not a scientific hypothetical construct in the same way that, say, a black hole is a hypothetical construct. Uh, that's right. So it's beyond, it's a metaphysical discussion of beyond science and, and simply it's not even a scientific question. Whether God exists or not is not a scientific question. Yes, I would agree with that. Mm. Because science, because it's outside the realms of science. It's outside the, the parameters of the natural world. Yes. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran conversation with the Reverend Dr Chris Mulherron. I did really want to talk to you about climate change as well, because I was really sure. interested in your, um, in your article and your views and, and the relationship between the philosophy of science and climate change and also the ideology that goes around science in general and, and also but particularly the science of climate change. Mm-hmm. One way or the other, whether it's climate change uh, alarmists, as you say, or people who are sceptics and denialists. Yep. Uh, I think I used the word before fundamentalist. I think there are fundamentalists on lots of issues and on the climate change issue I think there are fundamentalists on both extremes. I think they are people who want to for one reason or another bury their head in the sand or simply not wrestle with the difficulties. Uh, I think that fundamentalists tend to actually have some things in common. They're people who like generally a sort of simpler, a black and white it's been proven or disproven approach rather than dealing with the, dare I say, shades of grey in the middle. So on climate change, the deniers, I think, are simply, as the term implies, they are denying the reality that most of the world's experts on the matter are convinced that human beings are causing dangerous global warming. And then at the other end, there are fundamentalists who are Perhaps they're echo warriors or for whatever reasons, they don't want to acknowledge that the problem is a complicated one. And so they see simplistic answers and they think that alarmism is the way to go. And they're very convinced about what their solutions are. So let me give an example here in Australia. I think there are probably many very green. I I mean, I would describe myself as green, but not as green as the very greens. There are probably a lot of very green climate alarmists who are convinced that solar power is the way to go. But if you mention the possibility of nuclear power, they would throw their arms up in horror. Now, I think that the issue of nuclear power is a question that people who care for the planet and who are concerned about climate change need to take seriously as a possibility. We are right now suffering the problems of an inability to provide enough baseload power for the Australian electricity market. 
And while we dream of very large-scale concentrated solar thermal power stations and that sort of thing, we ought to be considering, at least considering, I'm not proposing so much as saying we ought to be open to the possibility of considering nuclear power. But if you've got a fundamentalist attitude, you won't even consider that. You'll simply, without looking at the evidence, you'll simply say, oh no, nuclear's bad. If you're green, you can't go there. Instead of saying, well, everything's on the table until it's been proven impossible. So there's an example of both the far left and the far right fundamentalist on the climate change issue, if you want to put it that way. I suppose I understood with your article that you were trying to address the concerns of sceptics to some extent of saying, well, don't look for this to be proven because that's not how science works. But they could equally look at it and simply come at it from Thomas Kuhn's perspective of paradigm shift. What they could say is, well, if there is a theory of climate change now, maybe there will just be a accumulation of evidence on the other side from sceptical scientists that will eventually overturn the theory. Yes. And hypothetically, that's true. But then, so what? (laughs) You know, I mean, the precautionary principle comes into play here. We're not dealing with something that is just a sort of hypothetical interest. We're dealing with a claim that is supported by the majority of the world's experts, that we are badly damaging the planet and we need to do something about it fairly quickly. Now, that's the claim. And the precautionary principle says if there is a significant possibility of catastrophe or very serious problems ahead, then you take the claim more seriously. If the claim is true, we don't have time to sit around and wait until Everybody is absolutely convinced. We need to make responsible decisions, and that's why we appeal to the opinion of the experts. And if the opinion of the experts is that in their considered opinion, we ought to do something now, or two degrees warming is going to cause such and such damage, and four degrees warming is absolutely appalling, then we ought to take notice of them. What have you got to lose? Well, (laughs) there's a lot to lose in both directions. In the short term, we need to spend money. We need to lose some of the enormous wealth of particularly Western countries in order to do something about climate change. We need to sacrifice a little bit of comfort. In the long term, we've got a lot more to lose. From the other side, they would be talking about, like you were talking about, uh, economic disadvantage due to it. So, you know, if Australia produces less than 2% of global emissions, but as you've said, they've got the highest per capita emissions in the world, people would say, from a sceptical perspective, why do we need to change it? Because we could potentially ruin ourselves economically and not have much of an effect anyway. Well, yes, there is that very simplistic argument, and every individual on the planet can make that argument. I don't count for much, so what I do doesn't matter. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Australia is a world leader in terms of setting an example, even if we're not a very big country. We're also, in terms of, I think the newest figures are, in terms of median family income, I think we are the richest country in the world. I think that our wealth, which no person was born with a right to in this country, I think our wealth means that we have a big responsibility too. Not to mention the fact that we have enormous reserves of coal and coal is a big player in this picture and therefore 
we are responsible, we collectively, Australia, is responsible for what we do with our coal. I guess we should talk about the evidence that you've stated in your articles that means that human action is most likely causing climate change. So what is the evidence that's profit? Let me be very clear. Yes. I am not a climate scientist, and I don't think that most of us have any sort of grasp on the evidence in a way that we can argue the case. No. I think that, you know, when it comes to evidence of what's gone wrong with my car, I find a mechanic who I trust and I listen to them. And the story that the climate scientists are telling seems to be convincing. There is overwhelming evidence, global warming, that is to say that the planet is warming up. There is overwhelming evidence that the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone up from 280 parts per million a couple of hundred years ago to over 400 parts per million. There is overwhelming evidence that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has a blanketing effect like a greenhouse, and so we call it the greenhouse effect, and we call the gases, there are four main gases that cause the greenhouse effect, we call them greenhouse gases. So there's if you like, there is a story that you put together into a theory that says we are causing a greenhouse that is causing global warming and it's having these effects and in the long term it'll have more effects. Now yes. somebody else can come in and say, well, what about what the sun's doing and what about all of those unknown unknowns that we simply don't know about? And of course we can't say, oh, well, there are no unknown unknowns because there could be and we don't know about them. Yeah, that's true. Um, so hypothetically, if the skeptic's line is, prove it and then I'll believe it, well, they are never going to get what they're asking for. And if we are duped into thinking that science has to prove it in some sort of absolute way, then we have bought the lie of the skeptic because right. that's not how we think in normal life at all. One of the criticisms that often comes up, and I don't know whether we can address it, is that it's around consensus of scientists, you know, saying that 95% consensus yep. is not really how science works. And I'm wondering whether it's 95% consensus of experts or whether it's also 95%, uh, like a 95% confidence interval around the data that's been collected. The 98% figure is a figure that comes from a survey, I think, organised by the website Skeptical Science, which yes. is a, a reputable website. That's John Cook, um, isn't it? That's John Cook in Queensland, yes. yes. So that's where that figure comes from. And that figure is referring to scientists who are expert in one field or another of climate science. It is not asking the particle physicist who isn't working on anything to do with the climate. It's not asking the geologist who doesn't have anything to do with climate. You know, you can always find scientists just because they are human beings who disagree with climate science. But the important disagreeers mm. are going to be the ones who have dedicated their lives to understanding some aspect of the climate and have solid reasons for their doubts about what is a consensus amongst most of the experts in the field. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr Mark Halloran conversation with the Reverend Dr Chris Mulherrin. I guess that the point there was um, around 
the data must also be showing a tremendous amount of confidence. You know, in terms of a 95% confidence interval, the data fitting within that to be showing that the observations match the theory, essentially. Well, the problem is, observations do match the theory, but the problem is it's very difficult in a question like climate science where yeah. you've got so many different bits of science coming in to make up the big picture, what are you going to put your 95% level on? Now, the IPCC does use that sort of language. For example, I think in their assessment report number four, I think they said they used 95%. They, I think they said, we believe that it's very likely that human beings are causing dangerous global warming yes. with a 95% degree of confidence right. now that 95 percent is just to cheer on the people who wanted to see a number on it you know or if somebody comes up to me and says i hear that your son's being selling drugs at the local school and i think i know my son pretty well and i say no way he's not selling drugs and the person says well can you prove it or do you know for certainty and i'd say well i don't know for certainty and then they say well what percentage do you want to put on that well, I might, if pushed, say, well, look, I'm 90% sure he's not, or I'm 99% sure he's not. They're pushing me to put a number on yeah. something that is really a subjective judgment doesn't mean that it's not based on good reason. I suppose what I'm trying to do here is get a full understanding of what the claims are, because these are usually the, the claims that are used to undermine the science, essentially. Yep the science of climate change. We're definitely on the same page in terms of I think that the best people to comment on and to relay the message of climate science are climate scientists, not even other scientists, not even other scientists in vaguely related fields because that's what you do a PhD. You do a PhD in a particular field. I could tell another scientist about the prion theory of disease and ask them whether they think that it's a reasonable theory in terms of neurodegenerative diseases, but it's unlikely that they're going to be able to make a very informed comment about that because, I mean, we don't have polymaths anymore because science since at least the 18th century has become so reductionist and individualised to its disciplines that you, you don't even have crosstalk between disciplines. But I was yep. thinking that the data within each discipline within climate science, they must have meta-analytic reviews and systematic reviews that show that, obviously, because they're saying most likely the data is all going in that direction. And that, that's what I would assume, because yep. do, do, I'm not a climate scientist. Yep. As you said, I mean, you know, climate science is a place where a whole lot of different fields come together. And it, it's demanding a sort of rigid statistical answer to the question of are we causing global warming yes it just so, doesn't understand the complexity of the situation because we're dealing with a massive non-linear system yeah well i like to talk to people about necessary and sufficient conditions for something to come that's how you develop causation if you're going to develop a form of causation is that you need to name all of the necessary and sufficient conditions so if yep. someone were to shoot me and it was to kill me by the bullet through the bullet hitting um, my femoral artery, then the gun is a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient in of itself, nor is the bullet. Yep. Um, yep. It requires all of those things in a sequence uh, to occur, yep. to have causation, if that that's makes right. sense. And yep. that's very yep. difficult to establish when we're dealing with incredibly complex non-linear systems because the interactions quickly become so complex that they're very very difficult 
to yeah. analyze. We're, we're good at linear systems. We try to fit things to linear models, but it, it's because we don't have anything really that much better. We, we reduce it to a linear model. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So I yeah, thought... It's very complicated. Yeah, I was thinking that is at the core of it. Like I said, I don't know much about climate science myself. I mean, what I would do is to say that I would accept the consensus of the scientists and the consensus, I would assume, of the data that the scientists are producing in terms of the decisions and the political decisions that are made and the, the way that the IPCC informs global citizenship and, and governments. Yeah. I think that seems to be a sensible thing to do. I think people yep. often don't realise that you can have opinions about things, but it's very difficult to have an informed one. Yeah, and we live in the day of uninformed opinion, don't we? I mean, Post-truth. we live in the day of Facebook where everybody gives their opinion about everything without even necessarily thinking about it, let alone being an expert in, in the field of whatever it happens to be. It feels like it puts you in a difficult position because I know you talked about blind faith in science, you know, because often people who are religious are accused of just, you know, having blind faith. Yeah, so, well, I don't believe in blind faith, either in science or in Christian faith. So, <laughs> you know, what we mean by blind faith is a sort of unthinking faith, an unwillingness to question, an unwillingness to listen, an unwillingness to think. And I don't think that's being responsible with the intellectual resources we've been given, whether we're talking about Christianity or science. Right. So I think that the Christian faith, being metaphysical, is in a different realm because I don't feel like that there is any observation that can come forward that would potentially change your faith. Well, that's a good question because that may well be true, but that doesn't make it wrong necessarily because... For example, let me give you an example. There are many people around the world in the world of science who are convinced about the multiverse theory. Uh, right. The multiverse theory being that we, we live in one universe, but there are actually a multiple number of universes, perhaps a, you know an infinite number or a going-on infinite number. There is no observation that can disprove that theory. But... The reason they believe that theory is because they think it's the inference to the best explanation. Right. If it is the best explanation, then that's the reason they believe it. It would be interesting to work out what observation could disprove the theory of evolution, for example. It is clearly the inference to the best explanation of all the data that we have. Well, it wouldn't disprove uh, it necessarily. All it would mean is it was no longer supported. Well, that's right, and no longer supported in the absence of another theory means that it would go on being supported and you would just write off that observation as a, you know, an aberrant one. So, I guess what I'm saying is the fact that you can't disprove something, even yes. hypothetically, doesn't mean that it's not true or it's not the inference to the best explanation. And that, once again, is true in science and yes. it's true in other realms of knowledge. The inference to the best explanation, in the example I used before, is that my son is not dealing drugs at school. That is, even though I can't prove it, and I can't disprove the fact, that the claim that my son was dealing drugs at school yesterday, I still think it's a bad explanation and there is a much better explanation. Right. So I guess that's how I understand Christian faith when you start to talk about evidence and proof. I think it is by far the most 
satisfying, big picture, worldview, if you want to call it a worldview, explanation of a whole lot of things that we take to be facts about the world that we live in, including morality and love and good and evil and a whole lot of other things, and including the natural world. It feels like it's a different system, essentially. That was why I placed it outside of science in terms of scientific constructs and things like that because i suppose even the multiverse people i completely agree with you you know you could make those arguments about things like dark matter you know yep. not measurable currently can't see it probably makes up 98 percent of the universe but they might make the assertion that well one day it might be it's either supported or not supported then you know we're setting ourselves up with a theory that's potentially confirmed or not confirmed but not supported i think christians have a pretty good comeback on that one christians are convinced that one day we will know one day all will be revealed and that there will be no doubt well that is true i did not think about the second coming as evidence well yeah i mean as i said before it depends on what you count as your evidence doesn't it there are different sorts of evidence. Talking about dark matter, you know, it was one of our, the director of ISCAST, Christians in Science, it was one of our distinguished fellows who first put dark matter on the map in about in the early 1970s, Ken Freeman, who's up at the Australian National University. He wrote about dark matter and people said, no, nah, that's a crazy idea. And he's in fact just about to publish a book on science and faith. So he actually won the um, Prime Minister's Prize for Science one year. A very prominent scientist here in Australia, but also a committed Christian believer. Yes. So, I mean, it seems to me that the the two ideas which have historically worked together and worked against each other in terms of the Roman Catholic Church and Inquisition and uh, Galileo, uh, (laughs) the list goes on, that they have complemented each other is what you've talked about. But they also, for you... And for people with belief, they don't cancel one another out, essentially. No, 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 no. And also, there's a lot of misunderstanding, too. Yes. I mean, you mentioned the Galileo example. That's probably the most famous misunderstanding. And I refer you to Peter Harrison's writing on that. There's a lengthy piece by him about the Galileo affair on our website. Galileo was a very difficult person. He was actually a good friend of the Pope earlier on. He made trouble for the church being a difficult person. But the other thing that Peter Harrison draws out very interestingly is that at the time, the church had science on its side when it rejected Galileo. The best science of the day actually was against Galileo. The church was standing on the side of the best science of the day. So it wasn't a case of science versus religion. But of course, that's the way that the conflict has been painted and it's a gross misunderstanding. So uh, worth chasing up Peter Harrison's work. They're in the um, early stages of a paradigm shift. Well, no doubt. And that's the famous example that Kuhn used. You know, yes. We talk about the Copernican revolution because Kuhn used the word scientific revolution. I think we talked about the Swans example about Europeans coming to Australia. And that seems to be some one of the best examples of kind of basic Aristotelian logic consequential logic essentially and how it informed science that they had previously thought all swans were white until they came to australia that was the theory the theory would have been that if it's a swan then it's white you just also yep. can't affirm the antecedents a swan from the consequence of so it's white doesn't necessarily mean it's a swan because there are other things that are white 
But when they came to Australia and discovered black swans, they had to rethink the entire theory. It's a and basic that's, example, that's but it's a good example. example. Of induction. Yeah. That despite the fact that we uh, accept induction as a good way of arguing, that is to say, this one is white, this one is white, this one is white, therefore all swans are white. That's yes. the way science works. There is always the possibility. It never gives us proof. As we see in the black swan example, it only takes one black swan to disconfirm, to falsify the theory that all swans are white. So, you know, but that's philosophy of science. How, what do we make of induction? Why are we so confident that induction is the way to go when we don't actually have a method of testing whether induction is a good logical way to think? I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> good to talk to you, Mark. Yeah, it was good to talk to you as well. And there it was, Mark Halloran in conversation with Reverend Dr. Chris Mulheron. I do have to address one of the points that Chris made towards the end of that interview, and that is the the Galileo Affair. He was referring to a lecture which you can view online, an address made by Professor Peter Harrison. It's on the ISCAST, I-S-C-A-S-T site. Basically, Peter Harrison said, Uh, In the early 17th century, we could number the scientific experts that supported Galileo on less than two hands. So the scientific consensus at the time was firmly against the view that Galileo was proposing. I just would say that the issue isn't really whether the church had grounds to dismiss Galileo's theories, but just how they treated scientists at that time. That's the point that we should take issue with. I think nowadays, if a scientist uh, came forward with a dissenting view, I don't think they would find themselves under house arrest for the remainder of their life, nor would they find themselves in a situation as Giordano Bruno did in 1600. Bruno was a philosopher, mathematician and poet, as well as being a Dominican friar. He proposed that the stars were distant suns surrounded by their own planets, He even raised the possibility that these planets might foster life of their own. He also insisted that the universe was infinite and could have no centre. He was prepared to back down on his philosophical beliefs, but he wouldn't back down on his cosmological beliefs. So in January 1600, Pope Clement VIII declared Bruno a heretic, and the Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, issued a sentence of death. And on Ash Wednesday, 17th of February 1600, in the Campo de Fiori, with his tongue imprisoned with one of those horrific devices that the Inquisition invented, he was hung upside down naked and then burnt alive at the stake. That was 1600, within the living memory of many of the people who were involved with Galileo's trial and sentence. So when we talk about the best science of the day, It's very hard to allow the... You could have the best science of the day when scientists had that kind of example set before them. Just imagine a scientist having that over their head. All right. Well, Mark, here he is. Let's talk about next week. You interviewed Carmel Bird, the novelist. Yeah, so I talked to Carmel essentially about her experiences growing up in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and how she feels about Tasmania itself, but really about one particular work that she did called Fair Game, which is about the first convict women who were brought to Tasmania when it was Van Diemen's Land and about their experience. And so she writes about the history of that. And at the end of the book, she writes a fiction about it. And so I talked to her about a lithograph, which is on the cover of the book, and also about what that work means to her. Hmm. Well, Carmel Bird is no stranger to the main FM studios, and she's always good value. And I'm sure you'll find that next week here on Deep Trouble, when Mark Halloran interviews Carmel Bird. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. <laughs>